a bookshelf would be empty if you took all of the books that women have written on Jewish law. And that should change because we're losing too many Jews and we need to create halachically proper music, but music relevant to this generation that allows us to guarantee the future of the Jewish people. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Recently, Israel's Attorney General, Dr. Avichai Mandelblit, announced that women should be able to take the same exams as men studying for the rabbinate. Not in order to become rabbis, per se, but to provide equality of opportunity regarding education, employment, and more. The chief rabbinate of Israel responded by threatening to stop all examinations— effectively to go on strike, if the Attorney General's mandate were to be implemented. Perhaps the Rabbinut is afraid of opening a Pandora's box, of a slippery slope towards the erosion of the traditional roles of women in orthodoxy. This, of course, makes a person wonder about the wider implications of that argument. Is there a place for women rabbis in orthodoxy? What about a different but equivalent role? And how should Orthodox Jews relate to wider questions about women's leadership in a society which has been traditionally led primarily by men? To answer these questions, I had the privilege of speaking to Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander, president and Rosh Yeshiva of Or Torah Stone, which is an Israel-based modern Orthodox movement committed to illuminating the relevance of authentic Torah Judaism in the modern world. One of Or Torah Stone's 28 institutions is the Susie Bradfield Women's Institute of Halachic Leadership, which confers upon its graduates the title of Morat Hora'ah, and incidentally awarded this title for the ninth time just as the chief rabbinate was discounting the possibility of allowing women to sit for the rabbinate's exams. Before joining Ortora Stone, Rabbi Brander was the vice president for university and community life at Yeshiva University, as well as the dean of YU's Center for the Jewish Future. He also taught rabbinic courses at REITS, Yeshiva University's rabbinical school. Rabbi Brander was previously the senior rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue, where he oversaw its growth from 60 families to more than 600 families. He became the founding dean of the Katz Yeshiva High School, the first Jewish high school between North Miami Beach and Atlanta. He was instrumental in the development of Hillel Day School, and he established the Han Judea campus, upon which many institutions of Jewish learning are based. Rabbi Brander, thank you very much for joining me today on The Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I want to start off talking about the recent brouhaha that occurred when the Attorney General effectively ordered the Chief Rabbinate, as I understand it, to provide examinations for women who want to take equivalent examinations to the Smicha exam. I don't believe they were demanding that women become rabbis, but rather that they be allowed to have the same educational opportunities as men. Now, I'm looking at an article right now in front of me from Yisrael Hayom, where the chief rabbi, the Sephardi chief rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, he's quoted as standing in firm opposition against this high court petition. Yosef claimed that the attorney general had contacted him and told him that the high court was waiting for his response to the petition and accused him of playing for time. Yosef voiced doubt that women could be tested on Jewish law about men and women in mixed company and all the laws pertaining to Shabbat. 
Quote, let's say we held a separate exam for them. Fine. Do they study all this? Maybe so. Today, there are talented women who study accounting and all sorts of things. But this is like an imitation of the reformed Jews. We need to distance ourselves from this ugliness and everything that resembles it. So I just want to ask you, Rabbi Brander, what's your opinion about what he said? Okay. Uh, well, thank you. I, I like to actually start with the facts and not respond to what Rabbi Yosef said, if I can, for a second. Please. And that is that the response by the attorney general, which, by the way, was crafted, and I'm happy to send it to, to you and you can post it or to any of your listeners, was crafted in coordination with Rabbi Yosef's uh, Mankal, his director general. So let's first understand what the agreement or what the decision by the attorney general says. The claim that was made by a group of women with the help of ETIM is the fact that unlike in anywhere else in the world, here the test to become a rabbi, which is not what they want, they are not, and they highlight that in their request, they underline it. They're not looking to become rabbis. Here, because it is a government administered test, it is a civil service exam. And the civil service exam in this country, known as taking these Rabbanut Bechinot, actually gives you a few different things. So for example, if you're studying for them, you actually get discounts on childcare. So if you're a man in my kollel who's studying for these, you get discounts. But if you're a woman who's learning, you get no discounts. Also, once you finish three out of the five tests, you get thanks to Minister Derry, or at that time, Minister Derry, you get a bachelor's degree, which means that if you teach at a seminary or any other institution, because you automatically have a bachelor's degree, as you know, you get paid at a higher level. Something that if a woman is studying, she does not get that, even if she takes the exact same test. And then the other thing is that because it's a civil service exam, in other words, it's an exam given by the government, it entitles you to apply for certain positions. So if you want to be a kosher supervisor in the Knesset, you have to pass the civil service exam known as the Rabbanut Bechinot, known as the rabbinical exams. You cannot apply, man or woman, if you haven't passed these civil service exams. The women made the request with the leadership of ETM that they don't want to be called rabbis. They're not looking for that. They want equality that comes from this civil service exam. And I don't want to bore you with the 30 plus pages of their request, but let's just look at the four bullet points that the decision, which by the way, indicates in multiple places in the three pages that it is, that the decision of the attorney general was done in concert with the leadership of the chief rabbi's office. In other words, Rav Yosef's office was involved with crafting this decision that allegedly he's challenging. And that is that there's an acknowledgement that in consultation with the Rabbanut, there is an agreement that this, this agreement states that the Rabbanut already agreed to, that there'll be a set of tests not given by the chief rabbi's office, because the goal here is not for them to become rabbis, even though when the chief rabbi gives these tests, there are civil service benefits and you automatically get a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. but it will be given by another group like the Ministry of Education. And once you pass these tests, be you a woman or a man who's not interested in becoming a rabbi or a woman who 
from my perspective, can play leadership roles in the Jewish community, halachic leadership roles in the Jewish community, but cannot become a rabbi, mm-hmm. if they take these equal tests given by a different organization, namely the Ministry of Education, they will receive the academic degree, which comes with the pay scale, as well as the additional benefits, and they will be able to apply for jobs that require that corpus of knowledge. But it will be an alternative Torah set of examinations, which will be established outside of the chief rabbinate, which will be conducted and operated by another entity, because these women, or for that matter, any man who wants to take these, does not wish to receive ordination from the chief rabbi. So, Rabbi Brander, in that case, I don't expect you to tell me someone else's motivation. What is Rabbi Yosef's objection if his own office was involved in this petition? And if we're not even talking about something which is under the auspices of the chief rabbinate? I can't, as you started out your question to me so uh, wonderfully, I cannot answer such a question because I, have, I cannot read minds. All I can do is read the texts, which Torah personalities are supposed to do before they weigh in on any topics, or yeah, you think anyone so, should right. do before they weigh in on topics. But I, I read the decision. I read the application and the decision. The decision, which is very short and not written in hard Hebrew, clearly indicates multiple times that the Rabbanut was involved and dates, the dates in which they had the meetings. Um, and the final paragraph says that the Mankal signed off on this decision, but due to technical difficulties, which could be, and again, this is not what it says, I'm reading into it, which could be simply because of Corona, he couldn't sign on the document also. But the bottom line is he's agreed, the chief rabbi's office agreed to this. Tests of an equal stature being given by a different government organization that celebrates the same commitment to the same Torah knowledge, and therefore the people who pass the test, men or women, will be allowed the same benefits for employment. Robert Brander, you're the president in Rosh Yeshiva of Or Torah Stone, and one of your institutions is the Susie Bradfield Women's Institute of Halachic Leadership. And if I understand correctly, you offer a degree, I think it's called Morat Hora'ah, to women who pass these exams that you give, that your institution gives. Right. And I believe also that one was given just in response, it looked like in direct response to what Rabbi Yosef had said. Is that true? Is, is that what had happened last week? Uh, it's the first part of the statement is totally true. The second part of the statement uh, has no basis in reality. Uh-huh. We have women, 14 of them, Uh, who study for five years, no different than all of uh, my male students who study for smicha in our Torah Yosef Kolel in Beren Machanayim, which is twice the size of the program that we have for women, actually more than twice the size, three times the size. And they study for five years. Year one is Hilchot Nida, as well as a whole bunch of other assorted topics. Year two is Chupan and Kedushin. Tefillah, brachot, blessings, marriage ceremonies. Year three is all the laws of kashrut. Year four is all the laws of Shabbat. Year five is the rest of the laws of Shabbat and the laws of mourning and life cycle events. And supplementary courses to help them with all the issues that go along with these laws. Women go into these programs and then every five years or so, it's a recently new program, they graduate. So 
the woman who grad who was who's graduating gra with we set the date for her graduation actually a year ago mm -hmm. as we will now set the dates for next year's the opinion from the court uh, just came out a week before the graduation but it had nothing to do with it we I had see. set it families had organized their lives around it we had no clue when this court uh, decision or actually to be more specific the attorney general's decision would come out so it just so happens coincidentally that right. they came out together actually technically to be totally technical the date for the graduation was actually i think june 17th or so and it actually coincided with my son and daughter-in-law's wedding and they felt that i should be at the event at the graduation so they postponed it till august but they postponed it in january way before this now it just so happens because of corona uh, my son's wedding please god is in a few weeks but the bottom line is that is the exact thing it had nothing to do one with the other i see well first of all mazel tov beyond right. that let me also ask about Amorat Hora'a, because when you describe the curriculum right now, that sounds like a regular smicha curriculum, as you described. What, therefore, is Amorat Hora'a, and how is that different from a rabbi? I, I really appreciate these questions. They're important questions. First of all, in life, titles are important, and there's nuance in titles. So there's always been a history in halacha that women who have been accepted as knowing Torah as we've seen with Yoatzot Halacha, as former chief rabbis have written in response to literature, as we see in the Gemara regarding Devorah, and much literature in the Pischei Tshuva and in other places where women who have a corpus of knowledge and are deputized by the community can answer those questions. But we don't call them rabbis because there are certain responsibilities that a rabbi can have that a woman who is a morat hora'ah, who can be a serious halachic, a serious leader in the Jewish community that's desperately looking for more leadership and different type of leadership, they play different roles. A, a morat hora'ah can't lead a formal minyan. She cannot uh, fully perform all the aspects of, uh, of a masader kedushin of someone who orchestrates the wedding. And she can, she can do pieces, but she can't do the whole piece. She can't serve as a witness. She can't serve in other roles. So nuance is important and we have to celebrate that nuance. But nuance does not mean that we dummy down the opportunities for women. We have to, in my opinion, we have to dance on the, on the glass ceilings of the past. That's what Rabbi Salavechik did when he uh, followed the footsteps of Sarishnir and introduced the first Talmud class. When women now have the capacity to learn Talmud, what are you going to tell them? They can get PhDs in every other topic in the world, but they guarantee the eternality and the immortality of the Jewish people. They can't learn. And so we've created a program where we, and by the way, I welcome you anytime, you or any of your listeners, to come and meet these women. The last thing in the world they represent is the negative nuances that often come with the word feminism, although there's some very positive components to it, the negative nuances. Mm -hmm. These women are women, some of them have seven kids, some of them have eight kids, some of them have two kids. I mean, they're in different stages of life. Uh, they've written halachic literature that has been accepted to Tchumen, which you know is like the Harvard Law Review for halachic sure. literature. Mm -hmm. 
um, and then it's been accepted without having to put a man's name on it. And we're making sure that not only do they study Hilchot Nida, but also they're studying all the laws of fertility in halacha. They're studying all the psychological issues. Not only are they studying these laws, but they're learning how to write. A bookshelf would be empty if you took all of the books that women have written on Jewish law. And that should change because we're losing too many Jews and we need to create halachically proper music, but music relevant to this generation that allows us to guarantee the future of the Jewish people. It's interesting, the laws are that the, uh, the temple instruments were good for every generation except for the trumpets. The trumpets represent the music that brings the Jewish people together. And therefore, the trumpets of Moshe are not the same trumpets that Joshua can use because we need different trumpets, different music. They have to be within the halachic context. And these women are now serving as Ramiot in yeshivot. They're serving as leaders in synagogues. We're hoping that they're starting to serve in the army as a chaplains, because there's no female chaplains in the army. There are a lot of women in the Israeli army. There's no chaplains in hospitals. We want these women to serve in those roles. They can play significant leadership roles without in any way compromising, but just complementing and amplifying the roles of rabbis. So there's a lot I want to ask you about that. Let me first ask what hopefully will be a quick question. You talk about the difference between what you call a Morat Hora'ah and a rabbi because they do have different roles. In principle, do you think there actually is a problem with a woman attaining the title of rabbi? Api halacha, api in any way whatsoever? I would not be comfortable as the Rosh Shiva and the president of Ortober Stone with giving a woman the title rabbi. I'm not here to in any ways focus on any other people who may do differently. I would not be comfortable, but let me just say this. I, I have a great amount of respect for rabbinic colleagues, both men and women in other streams of Judaism who have those titles. I see them as individuals who are selfless in their commitment to the future of the Jewish people. And as a rabbi in Boca Raton with the 600 family shul that you know, continues to grow, Baruch Hashem. And as somebody who played a, a vice president at YU that worked with all the different streams, we worked together on, on everything from advocacy to anti-Semitism to issues dealing with support of Israel. And they're my colleagues, and I would never speak negative about that. If you're asking me personally, would I be comfortable giving that title? I would most definitely not be comfortable. But I'm very comfortable doing what we're doing. And I am blessed to have students, these women, who are not only so engaged in their Torah knowledge, but they're serious Tamidot Chachamim. So I want to ask you also about what you mentioned a moment ago in terms of the reason they can't be rabbis and the idea that there are certain liturgical and other functions which they simply are not part of. For example, they cannot be a Shlech Sibor, and at least in very specific contexts, they, as you said, they can't completely run the Kiddushin the way a rabbi can. Please don't take this the wrong way. Isn't it possible that someone would look at Morat Hora'ah as rabbi minus? In other words, it's rabbi, but not quite. Are there certain things, therefore, well, first of all, you might say I'm wrong on that, and I want to hear the answer to that. But if it's true, are there some things that you would suggest that should be specifically the provenance of these Morat Hora'ah such that they would do it 
and perform a role that maybe rabbis would not perform. I don't want to call it separate but equal, but fundamentally a different role where they're not just doing everything a rabbi does, but a little bit less, but certain things that a rabbi wouldn't be involved in. Do you foresee that? Um, again, I, I, I welcome your wonderful questions. So I think the first thing we need to realize is what's the role of a, a rabbi? The role of a rabbi is to be an officiant at certain things, but I remember when I had the privilege of living in the apartment of Rabbi Salavechik, I asked him, you know, you get a whole bunch of titles on the mail that we open together and read together, which is the title you like the most, or which is the most important title? He said, the title that's most important to me is not rabbi, it's not doctor, it's not chief, it's not Moreno Harab, it's Malamed, it's to be a teacher. These women can and will be the future teachers of Klal Yisrael. They will inspire my grandchildren, both granddaughters and grandsons. And please God, they will also inspire yours. The Jewish people needs those voices. I'm not concerned about the roles they cannot play. I am working to celebrate the roles they can play. There's so much opportunity out there. We live in a state of Israel. We need to have women as chaplains in the Israeli army. As you and I speak right now, I have 350 women in the IDF, who are legally students of mine. They have not one female role model to turn to on halach issues. Yes, they have a WhatsApp uh, from Midrash at Lindenbaum uh, that they ask questions to, and because it's so many women, and it's not just our women, we have six WhatsApp groups, because I think the max in each one is 250 or something like that. So we have six WhatsApp groups, that we're asking, but there's no one in the army. There's no one in a hospital that represents that. Let's not focus on what they can't do. Let's focus on so much they can do. Even in synagogues, they can teach, they can answer shilas. You ask any woman whether she would rather ask certain halakhic questions to a man or to a woman who have the same corpus of knowledge. I think the answer would be quite obvious. And we're blessed for the first time. We have women who mamish feel at home, who literally feel at home with all the texts of our history. What a blessing. I'm not going to focus. And, and more importantly about what I focus on, I meet with these women regularly. They have never focused on what they can't do. They focus on what they can do. The woman who just graduated, coincidentally at the same time, not only did she take the Bechinot of the Rabbanut, she took one extra one in Giyur, in the laws of conversion, because she runs a conversion program that is actually approved by the Rabbanut. And she runs She's it. Bringing, she runs it. She's not going to be on the Beit Din. She's not going to be on the, you know, the rabbinical court but she runs it. She is creating a next generation of Jews. So I'm not worried about what they can't do because there's a plethora of things that they can do and the Jewish people are crying out for them. How do you answer people, I assume this has been mentioned to you, who say that women are not allowed to have positions of sorrow, of leadership, and that's one of the fundamental problems with putting a woman into any sort of position where she is going to be a leader of a congregation in any way? That question has come to me, and I would invite anyone, I have a shear on that on Wayu Torah, that someone wants to go through it in greater depth can go through it, wayutorah.org, and get it, or email me, and I'm happy to give you all the sources. But let's look at the halacha. The halacha suggests that in cases in which women are not forced 
upon the community, but are elected by the community, as in every single case that we're talking about, these laws don't apply. That's the simple thing. Like Devora is the first paradigm of that. The Pitre Tshuva mentions that any woman, former chief rabbis have written that in their responsive literature on that. And in addition to that, we only have to look at the fact that our synagogues, mainstream synagogues, have women who are treasurers of synagogues or of mikvahs or of schools. That is a higher level of srara than anything else. A female principal of a Beis Yaakov of a high school can decide the future of her students based on the grades. That is a higher level of srara than any rabbi has. As somebody who's been in the pulpit for north of 30 years. I think so, rabbis wish they had more Svara sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Rabbi Salvechuk once said that the KGB and rabbis don't realize how limited their power is. <laughs> Rabbi Brander, have you received any backlash for some of the innovations that Oratora Stone has taken upon itself? Well, first, let's look at the opportunities. I get to talk to you and to your listeners. So, you know. <laughs> I'm certainly appreciative of that. You know, listen, I, there's always backlash and it pains me when there's backlash. I, I haven't learned how to live with backlash. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not a good thing. It depends, depends who you ask. But the bottom line is that, yeah, there'll be some backlash. But at the end of the day, I've been very clear with the Ortora Stone community that we're not, we're not creating rabbis. We're creating tamidot chachamim. We're creating future leaders of the Jewish people. And they have significant roles that I've just articulated. If people can't appreciate that nuance, then you know what? I, I, I want to explain it to them, which is the reason I've agreed to come on this program. But I can't stop doing what I think is right and what I think my teachers would want of me, or at least some of them. Perhaps the most important thing is if you look at all of the articles on this topic, which were not orchestrated by Ortor Stone, but by others, whether it's in Arad Sheva or the Jerusalem Post, which has demanded the chief rabbi's resignation for his comments against a large swath of the Jewish people. Right. But the bottom line is that what these statements have done by the chief rabbi is just promote uh, what we're doing. Uh, somebody asked me if the chief rabbi is on our payroll. Uh, <laughs> but the bottom line is that we have a great relationship with the chief rabbinate. Rabbi Lau is totally committed to dealing with Agunot. As you know, we deal with 650 Agunot a year, the largest organization, Yadli Isha, that deals with Agunot internationally. We have women representing women uh, in front of the Bate Din Rabbani, in front of the rabbinical courts. We're the only group that has women who have, they're not only lawyers, but they have the halachic knowledge. They represent women in front of the Jewish courts. And we get phone calls from the Rabbanut saying we have a really difficult case. We need one of your women to represent them hmm. because we know how dedicated they are. Can you make sure that they're represented? So I don't view this as an issue between us and the Rabbanut. We work together. You walk into the head of the Aguno department of the Rabbanut. You walk into his office and right behind where he seat, sits is a plaque in which he recognizes the work of Ortora Stone's Goldberg Yadli Isha program, Monica Dennis Goldberg Yadli Isha program. So the bottom, the bottom line is that, you know, we celebrate our relationship with the chief rabbi. We just, 
you know, there's just been some comments that we'll, we'll, we'll need to work on and at Bezrat Hashem, they'll all work out. So that leads to an interesting question. I believe you've been president in Rosh Hashiva of Ortora Stone for about two years. Is that right? Uh, almost. If it's a neural corona, it's like 10 dog years, but it's almost two years. <laughs> okay. Okay. So at this point, what is your vision for the future of Ortora Stone as a larger institution, meaning in terms of its place in the state of Israel? Do you see it as having a more foundational role in terms of interacting with the chief rabbinate, in terms of dealing with issues at large? Or is it more of an educational institution that will remain that as opposed to something which has a larger influence? How do you see its future? I mean, first, I think my first responsibility is to be a custodian of the legacy of Rav Shlomo Riskin and the wondrous work that he's done as really uh, one of the innovators of this generation. I think that's my first responsibility. I think my second responsibility is to build the second, the second story and improve the second floor and improve the first floor. And I think the answer to your question is yes and yes. You know, we are a movement. We are a movement, an orthodox movement that engages with all Jews and with all of humanity. So we do that through our 3,500 high school students. Um, you know the schools, Neve Shmuel, Derechavot. These are schools, Oriyah, Neve Ramot Banim, Ramot Banot. These are serious institutions. They're respected by the government. The army is rated one of them in the top five for its graduates serving as Kravi commanders, uh, serving as combat commanders, uh, number five in the country. And we have special education programs. I mean, it's a wondrous institution. We have the only program for kids from outside of Israel who want to spend a year or two or three uh, who have various needs. Um, and we have hundreds of more post high school thousands of more post-high school who are engaged. And as you and I talk, to be perfectly exact, 277 men and women who are serving as emissaries in six of the seven continents of the world. And then we interact with around 400,000 Israelis through our Jewish community centers and around 7,000 Christians who begin as pro-BDS come on our missions and walk away as pro-Israel. Hmm. Um, so we're, we're a movement, but we're guided by Torah. We're calibrated. Our spiritual compass is Torah values. So if you ask me, I think we're a movement. We engage with the state of Israel. Obviously, any conversation on education, we're invited to by the various components. Any conversation on the army, my first week, as president of Ortora Stone, the minister of defense called me. He wants to meet with me. I said, I come to his office. He said, no, I want to come to you. He said, please don't change the role that your Orthodox women have been playing in the army. It has transformed the army. I needed to come to you to tell you that. Wow. So we're playing a significant role in the army. When you're interacting with tens of thousands throughout the diaspora because of your uh, really dedicated shlichim, some who are in, were in communities that when they had children, they couldn't give them a brit on day eight because the moal couldn't come. They had to wait three, four months. Some who had to deal with the halachic question that because of corona, they wanted to cremate bodies within 24 hours. And so in conversations with various distinguished rabbis, we came to the conclusion that with burial by non-Jews, they could bury on Shabbat to stop cremations. I mean, you're talking about, Ortor Stone is a movement. 
we hope to continue to contribute to the betterment of the Jewish people and the betterment of society. Now, calling it a movement, what exactly holds together the various parts of this movement? You mentioned to me before we went on the air that there are 28 different institutions that are part of Oratora Stone, and they cover a plethora of different activities. Some of them involve Jewish-Christian dialogue. Some of them involve, as we're talking about now, education, women's education. You mentioned BDS. What is the common denominator, and I don't just mean Torah per se, but that specifically is unique to Oratora Stone that holds all of these pieces together into a single whole? It's a great question. I'll answer it, uh, first of all, seriously, obviously. And that is, I think we're like a Jewish Amazon. And we ask ourselves every day what our goals are. First of all, we're doing a strategic plan to make sure that we answer the question you just mentioned. How do we make sure that the whole is greater than the parts? How do we make sure that there's a sacred synergy between the parts? How do we make sure that, um, you know, the halachic conversations in our programs with the Shlichim um, reflects on how the kolalim are being taught. But bottom line is, I think the major message of Ortara Stone is it's about Jewish living, it is about Jewish learning, and it's about Jewish leading. Leadership, learning, and living. And if it doesn't fit into that rubric, which is a very large rubric, um, we don't entertain it. And we, we have conversations at least weekly uh, about ideas. But I think that, I think the goal of any leader, and uh, so I was taught by my mentors, uh, people like uh, Stuart Harris of Blessed Memory and others, is I need to ask myself a question on a regular basis, especially during Corona. I need to be committed to, to, to all of the donors. And I need to ask myself, is there any duplications? And if other people are doing the issues, we shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we should cl- maybe we need to expand in certain places and narrow in other places. And that's always been, you know, my focus. And Baruch Hashem, with an unbelievable group of colleagues, I think we've achieved wondrous things. Rabbi Brander, this has been very enlightening. We're almost out of time. I want to ask you one final question to go back to our original topic about appointing a woman as a Murat Hora'ah, a spiritual guide or leader. People often say, perhaps with justification, that the perfect is the enemy of the good. In other words, we need to accept that things don't change overnight, and we need to sometimes accept compromises while waiting for a perhaps eschatological ideal. Do you look at the role that Oratora Stone is promoting for women as the ideal or a stepping stone towards something else, perhaps in the distant future? Uh, I was enjoying this interview until that question, but the bottom (laughs) line is... Everything I just shared with you is striving to the ideal. So for example, there are no women chaplains in hospitals right now. There are no women chaplains in the army. And I think the responsibility of having vision is not just having large ideas, but having an implementation strategy. So for me, I'm not thinking about whether, you know, how do I get to perfection? I'm looking with my colleagues who guide me in so many different ways. I'm looking with my colleagues at opportunities, current opportunities. The fact that communities all over the world want these women to spend two, three years there. The fact that all of these institutions, whether it's government institutions of all different sorts that I've just mentioned to you, are poorer because they don't have these women. And once we, we solve those issues, which will take many years, 
then I can evaluate uh, how do we get to the next stage. Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks for joining me. Please visit the Jewish Coffee House website at jewishcoffeehouse.com, which has been updated and looks better than ever. You'll find some terrific podcasts there, along with my blog, and the opportunity to support Jewish Coffee House on Patreon, where you can get bonus podcasts like Ask the Rabbis, merch, and more. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is at JewishCoffeeH, and like the Jewish Coffee House Facebook page. See you next time. I'm Scott Kahn on the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thank you.